In chapter 4, we pick it up in verse 15. And I remind you, this is the pithiest portion of this. I mean, there's been, in the first two chapters, a whole lot of personal testimony. And now... In chapters uh, 3 and 4, he really is developing things from a much more doctrinal perspective. And I'll kind of, again, you don't have to know anything to kind of jump into this with us, don't worry. Uh, so think of it this way, sort of the first two chapters are personal, the middle two chapter, chapters, in essence, are doctrinal, uh, positional, principle. And then our last two chapters are going to be practical. And then this is what we read in verse 15. Brethren... I speak in the matter of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. Now to Abraham and to his seed, where the promise is made, he doesn't say to seeds, as to many, but as to one, and that's to your seed, who is Christ. Now this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, then it is no longer of promise. God gave it to Abraham by promise. What does the law serve? Then what purpose does the law serve? Well, it was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. A mediator doesn't mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. If there had been a law given, which could have given life... Truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture was confined, has confined all under sin, that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under, the, under guard by the law, kept for the faith that would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. After faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as are baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, neither male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I know that this may even seem fairly almost legal, the way that it's addressed, but Lord, I pray that what you want us to learn tonight, we would understand. And, and Lord, more than just that we would kind of be able to pull out little nuggets and be able to have them as stones to chuck at someone else, but rather, Lord, that we would understand you better. So Lord, please get us to, get us to understand this in such a way, Lord, that, that we would go, oh man, this is, it would just be so crystal clear to each of us. And you know how to do that. You know how to speak fluent us individually. So do so tonight. So Lord, by the, the and only a way that you can minister in such a way, Lord, that, that every one of us would just be captivated in your word tonight. And that this would all make so much sense. And Lord, that we would be able to do more than just get it, but that we would respond accordingly. And so, Lord, I commit this to you and pray, Lord, that you would do an amazing work here now. Do everything you intend. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. That's one of the reasons we want you to have one is, man, there's so many guys that say so many things and you really need to hold people accountable. And that includes me as well. Okay, so this is going to start with a story that's biblical because we need to kind of get the context. Now, look at 
The whole point of this was that there was this guy who had planted a church uh, 2,000 years ago in the center of Turkey. The area is called Galatia. It's not a city, it's a, it's a region. And so in the center of Turkey, the people there had really milky skin. And like the word galaxy or galactus, it means milky. And really, Galatians was the milky people. They were the fair-skinned Turks. And when Paul, the guy who had actually planted the church, had gone there and planted this church, he did so in the simplest sense of telling you, like, look, at the difference between Jesus and everything else is paramount. Now, I, I know that because things get so involved with politics in the world we're around, and it just kind of looks like everything else, and it really shouldn't. And here's the basic of it. That with every religion, we're all kind of somehow intrinsically aware of the fact that we're kind of tweaked people. We're kind of messed up. And the point is, how do we make ourselves right? The problem is with everything outside of Jesus Christ, it's about you initiating, you being the impetus, you making it happen, and hoping that the judge behind the X-Factor box is going to give you a favorable pass on to the next round. And it doesn't matter really what it is. And Christianity, when it loses focus on the biblical Jesus, will do the same thing. It'll start inventing these things, which, by the way, are not in Scripture. Things like purgatory. Now, look at, again, I'm, I'm, I'm just being bold on these things, because why dance around something like that? But again, hold me accountable, search the scriptures, and you find it. But what happens when you start introducing some of these things, what happens is now you've got to give, and you've got to light these candles, and you've got to crawl up these things on your knees, and you've got to touch relics, and you've got to smell things, and look at dead people, and, and I mean, it gets crazy how many things you have to do. And here's the idea again. If you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you're kind of ticking boxes, right? And you're like, in the end of it all, you're kind of feeling like you're standing before God, and you're like, well, okay, so God, um, of the 12, I got like 11. That's got to be passing here. And you're kind of hoping that God's kind of looking and going, well, I'm feeling in a good mood, yeah, go on in. And then the problem is it's just not scriptural. The difference is, with everything else, we're trying to do this kind of thing, hoping, but we don't even know what the rules are. So some guy with a pointy hat or some person that's loud with a southern accent, you know, those are my favorite, like, you know, well, I want to tell you something. And then, then they waved her hand, in her, and then somehow that gives them validity. And we're like, well, that guy must be the expert, because he's so weird, he's got to be from God. And then what happens in the end of it all is you take something, some standard they set, and then you're like, oh, I hope that's good enough. But then you get to Scripture, and this is what happened with me, because my understanding of God was that too. And then I get to Scripture, and I'm like, wait a minute, God made man... I mean, if you think about it, if we took it literally the way it is, there's six days where God made stuff. And He just said, this thing be, and it was. It wasn't like it took a lot of time. God, like, for instance, for there to be light, there were two words, by the way. He said, light be, and there was it. But He didn't make man on the first day and then say, no, let's write all this stuff down. He didn't make him on the third day and go, now get working on some of this stuff. If you realize that God made man on the sixth day and then he took the next day off. Why do you think he did that? Because he was tired? I mean, I think even you wouldn't be so tired if you were like, light be. Whew, that really takes it out of you. Could it actually be the reason he took the day off was because of the person he made? See, the difference in Scripture is paramount because somewhere in this, God made man, and then he's like, now I'm done because I just want to be with you. I just want to spend time with you. I just want to hang out with you now. There's the point. And throughout the entire Scripture, man having a choice in the matter has a choice to receive that love because love isn't love without a choice or to go his own way. 
But the moment he does, well, now we've got all kinds of problems because now we're selfish and we're self-driven and we're self-centered and we're self-centric. It's all about us. And there's a God who's constantly still chasing us. Now, in Scripture, this is what he says. Time and time again, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people, but you wouldn't have me. Does that sound like a God who's like, fine, just go to hell then? It's like I'm constantly chasing after you. And from the very beginning, with man, get this, and, and, and I, I, there's so much to say and I have to put that into 40 minutes, right? Put this, consider this, before man ever made a choice against him, everything that God made up to that point he looks at and he just says, tov. Tov means good, it's useful, it's beneficial. It's good. Tov. They still use the word today. The first time God says, not good, lotov, was not man. Ladies, don't get off on that. You know, like, they don't see, God made man, and they said, see, that's not good. It was man's aloneness. But what's interesting is God said, I'm going to make man like me. So that if you look at something unique about man, you're going to find something unique about me, God speaking. So when God makes man, and he's there, and he breathes into him, and he forms into him, and he goes, you know, there's just something not right here. He's alone. We, I want him to have someone. I want him to not be alone. I want him to have a, a partner, someone he can run with. Please understand, that's because God made man like him. And the reason he made man in the first place was because God wanted someone to run with. There's the idea. So please understand that God's intention was always to have fellowship with man. And then he does something unique. I mean, he could have just said, wife be. He'd been done that with everything other than man so far. He could have, I mean, the, the fact that God takes such careful care to do something strange like rip a rib out of a guy. The first surgery in scripture. It says that Adam fell, Adam fell into a deep sleep. God gave him a deep sleep and he was sleeping deep. That's how that works. This is, and God removed the rib. Now, maybe you read it and you think, well, this is such a cute fairy tale. But what if it were actually real? And God was setting this whole thing up. And what you have now is it says that he pulled this rib out of the guy and he, then he puts a scar. The first scar in Scripture was not with God here in this sense. Uh, it was with man. And it's like, look at this hole in his side, he would be able to say later, this hole in my side is how I got you. Because of this hole in my side, I got my bride. Because of this hole in my side, I have a partner now. Which is interesting because I can't help but think that there's only one place that Jesus was pierced whilst on the cross, and it was in his side. It was the same place he would tell Thomas, one of his disciples, later after he was risen from the dead, hey, come on in touch if you need to. If this is what it's going to take, go ahead. And could you see Jesus saying, look at this thing right here? It's just proof that I really wanted you in the first place, and that I, I finally get what I want, which is you. That's the point here. So understand that throughout Scripture, this God is constantly doing this. He takes this guy, and this is where Paul is going to pull this whole thing up, the guy who plants this church, because the church goes back now, it gets tweaked to this place where it goes back to, you try to do it, and God maybe will respond, versus God's been chasing after you and wants you to respond. There's the whole difference. That's Jesus. Nowhere else you're going to find that. He's chasing after you, and you're like, well, come on, give me, how, give me one reason how. Somehow, out of the strangeness of the universe, you're in this room right now. Figure that one out. Some of you never thought you'd sit in a pew like this. 
And here you are sitting here listening to a crazy guy from California tell you about God. We thought that through it all. And there's this guy. He's an idol worshiper according to the book of Joshua, the last chapter, where he gives the account of it. The guy's name is Abram. And Abram, by the way, God calls him. He speaks to all of that madness and he says, get out. He is in the sort of Gulf Coast. The Gulf Coast is sort of the idea there. Sort of the Yemen. Kind of where we had that Gulf War crisis. That was that, that whole area. And he calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and says, get on out. I've got such a call on your life, man. And he's like, look at, I want you to leave everything you know to follow me. And it's like this guy, he's been, he's been in an idol worshiping house. It isn't like, oh, there's the real God and then there's these monkey looking things. It's like somehow in the midst of all of these trinkets, a voice comes down and would you start thinking you were losing it? Would you think you're losing your mind? You know, and guys like, look at, you just gotta follow me. I'm not even going to tell you where yet. I'm not even going to tell you what we're going to do when we get there. But I'm going to tell you this. The entire world's going to be blessed because of you. Could you imagine that? I mean, would you think you've gotten delusional by the point you heard God say that? I'm going to touch the whole world through you. And what's interesting is of all the people who would argue about who am I, Abraham just goes. Now, Abram will ultimately become Abraham. God's going to give, do that name change in route of all of this. But understand, here's the point of it. Is that Abram did nothing to earn that. He wasn't like being a good idol-worshipping guy, or that he was a great son, or that he was anything other than he was married to a girl named Contentious and they had no kids, and he was old. That's all we read about the guy at that point. God's like, look, I just want you to come now and follow me. Now listen, and, and, and forgive me if I get a little technical, I'll try to go through that quickly, but in the Mesopotamian area, or in the Middle East as a whole, unless you're kind of monotheistic, and that came, by the way, through Judaism, and then of course we have that sort of big insurgence through Islam in the 500s, everything else was polytheistic, and that means you had lots of gods, you know, pretty much you had, but all the gods fit into four categories. There was a God of protection, there was a God of provision, there was a God of production, like babies, that kind of thing, and then there was a God of pleasure. And each one of those gods had their own altars, each one of those gods had their own sacrifices. The God of pleasure was always you offered your firstborn son. That was always the case, and you find that throughout all of the Middle East. You still find that, by the way, in a lot of those places. If they're not, if they're not Judah, if they're not Jewish, if they're not Christian, if they're not Muslim, you're going to find that. And what's interesting is, is that Abram on this journey is going to build four altars. And I challenge you as Bible students, look through the book of Genesis yourself. And what you'll find is in each one of those cases, he's going to discover that this God who's called him is all the gods in one. He's everything that this guy is looking for in one. His protection, his provision, even the fact that the guy's going to be 99 years old when he has a baby, well, 100 by the time he has a baby. But don't worry, his wife was younger. She was 90, so she was okay. And of course, and the, and the hope, I mean, imagine what that would be like at school, right? They're like, oh, you brought your great-grandfather. And he's like, no, that's my, that's my dad, you know? I mean, no matter where you go, people are going to ask questions. And that's the point of it. But please hear me in all of this. This whole Abram thing, when God said that to Abram, it made no sense at 75, and it made absolutely no sense at 99. 
But in 75, when he says, come on, just come with me, he doesn't say, just go away and I'll tell you, you know, I'll send you some sign. He's like, come with me, come with me. And there's the whole call of God. It was like, in the middle of your day, God just broke through the whole thing. He shattered your normalcy and said, come and come be with me now. And you're like, hmm. Could you imagine flipping that back over to, well, maybe I just compete to this sort of distant judge who has no interest in me? Could you see why Paul's pulling his hair out? He's like, what's wrong with you guys? I was with you guys for years. When we planted this church together, how could you possibly flip this? Because it's just the opposite. And he goes, look at this whole law thing. The problem is we feel like we have control. We feel like if, if we could just manipulate and here are the rules, well, I can tick boxes. And then I feel like faith is a dangerous thing because man, it's like trust, is, trust is, a, is a scary thing. Hey, if i got the matter in my own hands, I'm cool with that. I feel like I have control. So hear me on this. By the time God, God reinserts himself three chapters later, that was Genesis 12. Three chapters later in Genesis 15, God's like, hey, look at I haven't forgotten. I mean, the poor guy's going to wait 25 years for this promise to come to pass. But it isn't just a promise. It's a covenant. And there's the point. Now, please understand the difference. A promise just means you're, gonna, you're speaking about something with surety that's coming on later on that involves you usually. But a covenant demands a relationship. Now, underneath the covenant, you can have promises. But they demand a relationship to be fulfilled. And understand, God didn't just give out, hand out promises. He got in a covenant with this guy. He's like, look, at, I want us to have a covenant. Because I want you to realize, Abram, I'm not calling you just to perform for me. I'm asking you to be with me. If you would be with me, I'm going to take care of the rest. I'm really going to take care of the rest, buddy. So by chapter 15, three chapters later, God reinserts this. He comes back in a situation and goes, let's do it the way you do it here. Now in the Middle East in those days, a covenant didn't involve a ring. In those days, a covenant didn't involve a cup yet. In those days, a covenant involved a poor, unsuspecting animal. And you get the idea, because a covenant was such a demanding relationship, what you did is you took this poor on, you know, this animal who didn't see it coming, and you halved it. Usually a really large animal like an ox. It wasn't like a chicken, not that that's, you know, you get it, but it's like an animal big enough where you were sloshing through blood, and you cut it in half, and you put it on both sides, and you walk through this blood, and you say you're part of the bargain. This is what I'm going to do in our relationship. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm committing myself to this. That's what I'm doing. And the idea of it is, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. And that's what we were trying to say. The same idea when you hear it, when someone stands up at the altar and it says, Whatever God has brought together, let no man tear apart. And you kind of look and you go, I don't want that to happen to me. Look, if you said yes to Jesus Christ, you've entered into a covenant with him. And this is what God says then in chapter 15. He goes, let me give you some more details now that we are in this covenant now. You're going to, four generations from you, because God knows everything, so this shouldn't be a big deal. For Abraham, it would be kind of weird. It would be weird for you. Imagine if God said, four generations from you. You're like, well, I don't even have kids yet. Well, don't worry, you will. Four generations from you, you're going to go into a land that's not your own. And they're not going to be very nice about it. They're going to treat you terribly. And you're going to be enslaved for 400 years. 
And then after that, you're going to come out with riches. Now that sounds like a weird riddle. You're going to go in a slave, you're going to come out rich. That's weird. And this is exactly what happens. Ultimately, for 30 years, they're in Egypt because one of their own brothers that they sold into slavery gets raised up to second in command and actually saves people because he has insight into a coming famine. He stores all this grain. The people all come. His family is reunited with him. And they're down there for 30 years that are really decent years. And then arises a new pharaoh. Now the problem with this pharaoh was he was actually Egyptian. The one before that was what's called Sephardic. He was a, a, a shepherd. And as a shepherd, you know, once he was sort of, once he sort of didn't come to be, the Egyptian says, whatever laws this guy passed, I, I don't, I'm not going to hold him legal. And now they really start to treat the, the Israelis bad. For 400 years, they are slaves in Egypt. And understand, when God starts to deliver them out of Egypt, He puts nothing before them but Moses and his brother. What I mean by that is God never said, look it, I know you're in bondage right now, so here's a list of things I want you to do, and if you do all of these, well then, <clears throat> then I'll get you out. Wouldn't that be like every other religion? You do this thing, and then I will respond with this. But that's not what happened. God says, I've heard their cries, I've seen their anguish, I know their pain. So I'm going to go down there and deliver them. You know what motivated him to deliver him? Love. That's it, just love. No, nothing but love and a covenant that he got into, because he already knew all of this. He told it to Abraham in Genesis 15. So God systematically takes down every god that Egypt worships so that the Egyptians would know that they could come too and that he really is the only one to serve. And they leave. Roughly two million people leave Egypt. And God gets them out and he gets them in an 11-day journey and he gets them to this mountain. It was the same mountain from which Moses was called. Mount Sinai or Horev. And it's there that God says, now that you're out of Egypt. And God, if you will, has this really kind of this pep talk, if you will. And please hear me, because this will get us right into our text. He says, and please hear me, if, if, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus, please hear my heart in this. And if you haven't, please hear my heart. I want to give you that gift tonight. I, I, I can offer it to you. At that point, you just you have the opportunity to say yes or no. That's up to you. But please hear me. God says, and says, you know how terrible your life was. You know how terrible your life was. You were a slave. That's what you were there. And you know the emptiness and the despondency and the pain and the suffering and the futility and the hatred that you hated yourself, you hated your life, you hated the world around you. You just wanted things to change and you felt so weak and powerless and so empty. He goes, I know all of that. The problem is it's all you've known now. I mean, 430 years is a considerable amount of time. That means your great-grandfather knew this. And that's all they've known since. And he goes, I want to set some standards up so you don't want to go back there. I don't want you going back because I love you and I don't want you to go and be a slave again. 
And some of you know that. It's like you were in a horrible relationship with someone and they were terrible and they, they were, they, everything was wrong except maybe three seconds of kindness in years of knowing them. And you get away and somewhere in all of that you romanticize the three seconds if that was the majority of your time. And you're like, oh, I kind of miss them now. And what you kind of missed was the familiarity. Even though it was horrible and it was empty and you felt so abused and so worthless, at least you knew it. And it doesn't take faith to go back to that vomit. But it does take faith to step forward and say, you know, I'm going to try to go someplace else. I want to get out of that. I don't want to go back to that. And this is what God's doing now. He's looking at his I love you. I don't want you ever to go back to that. So I want to set up some standards. To say, because of what you've known, we need to detox you from Egypt. He goes, but let me tell you something else. I'm taking you into a place that's just as bad. But I'm not taking you to that place now so that you can go and blend in with those people. I'm sending you to change the world now. I want to make you a world changer. And to make you a world changer, we need to have standards set up before you get there so you don't try to blend in with things that that are traps there. I don't want you to kind of get out of the addiction of alcohol to find yourself addicted to crack on the other side. I don't want you to kind of go back from this horrible, you know, like all you wanted to do is give up your body so people would like you to go over here to cutting yourself. That's like, I don't want you to do that. I want you to run from one thing to the next. I want to set you free. So look at I'm going to lay these things on you, but these things, they, listen, they are not, if you do them, then I'll be, God, I'll be good to you. He's like, if you want to say, these are how you try to get right with me, we're going to have trouble. Because you're going to have to be perfect with it. But on the other side of it, how about I lay these things out as fences of my love to say, don't go beyond these fences because they're going to get you back to Egypt or they're going to get you to blend in with the world you're going to go into to change. I don't want you to do that. Because I love you. And you know what's going to happen if you go back to Egypt? We won't be close. Or if you go and blend in with that world, we won't be close. Because please don't do that. And the whole idea of these Ten Commandments that he lays down there in Exodus 20, it starts with this. What you left was you could pick whatever God you wanted and you could make them up any way you wanted to. And people would be like, how dare you tell me who God is? I want to warn you, where you're going, it's going to be the same. But I don't want any other gods. I I, I love you so much, I don't want anything competing with that. That's the first commandment. Did you get that? He's like, I want it to be us. I don't want there to be idols. I don't want there to be images. I don't want there to be icons. I don't want there to be dead people you're trying to get in touch with. I I just want it to be you and me. Because if this is what it starts with, everything else gets so much better. And I want you to realize I'm different than everybody else. I'm never going to change my mind. I'm never going to look and go, wow, now that you're that. Because you were messed up when I found you. The first four commandments of the ten all revolved around this. I want a relationship with you. The fourth was, can we take that day off now all the time? Every week, can we take that day off and be together? I started that because I wanted to be with you. Will you do it with me now? And it's like, now that we have that right, then the next six, we're just, this is how I want you to treat each other. I want you to love each other. 
So by that time, God reviews that law at the end of the Torah in Deuteronomy. He says, can I put it all in one rule, one law? He says, could you hear this? The word for hear is Shema. It means, pay attention to this, please, Israel. Shema Israel. Completely solid on this. And one, here it is. Love me with all your heart, soul, and strength. Because if you do that, it's all going to work out. Can you see where God's coming from? And this is what Paul was laying out. Now look, at if, if this is all mind-blowing because this is so different than what you've known, my challenge to you is, yeah, it's different. The question is, is it true? Because the God I've responded to is this God. And I've fallen in love with Him because He's everything He says He is. It's really that simple. I, I, I've never been big on, I hate politics. I hate politics in the church. I hate politics out of the church. I don't, I don't want to fan on any of that stuff. I'm not quick to join clubs. I'm not quick to do any of that stuff. Somebody transformed my life at the offer of saying, I died on the cross because someone has to pay for that guilt, and I decided I would rather do it than have you pay. Will you accept that payment? Why would you want to pay for something I've already paid for? And I want to be the Lord and love of your life. And then I'm going to so overflow out of you, you're going to love other people that you would hated otherwise. Now, go back to the text with me. Now, forgive me for that lengthy sort of dissertation, but I want to kind of do that so we can kind of look at it and watch how it just simply unfolds like a delicate little flower. It says this, Brothers, verse 15, look at it with me again. I speak in a manner of men. I'm trying to explain this in a way that you're going to understand as a, as a human being. Notice he started though with brothers, and the reason it's important is that none of these epistles were written to people who have not accepted Jesus Christ. Because it isn't like I want to lay these trips on you guys and say this is proper behavior for a person who's not even accepted a reason. Because otherwise what you're doing is you're laying a trip on someone without the relationship. Hey, with every relationship there's protocol. This is like it is a matter of men... So it's only a man's covenant. Once it's confirmed, it doesn't get changed. The covenant, by the way, I remind you, was God with this guy, Abraham. That's how it started. The same person that the Jewish people to this day call their father of their, of their family. The father of Judaism. By the way, the Muslims do as well. And it says, once you come into a covenant and it's agreed upon, it can't be changed. In the book of Esther, and some of you are familiar with one of the primary points of it is, is if you try to change a law, it shows the weakness in a kingdom. A real, true kingdom does not change its laws. And he says, look at You need to realize, if God got in a covenant with you, nothing anyone else can try to add or take away can change it. When God says, I love you, I died on a cross for you, and I rose again, and I want to make you brand new, a new creation where all that horrible stuff you came from is detached from you now and you can walk away from it? And you say yes to that offer? Nothing can change it. You've then entered into that covenant. So listen, once it's confirmed, nobody, it doesn't matter who it is, can add or take away from it. So when someone comes later and says, oh no, God had a different idea and this is what he wants to add to it, God says, sit down and shut up. That's not the case. If I entered into this agreement, there it is. And he says in verse 16, to Abram and to his seed, what God promised, he said, to one specific person, not just to everybody, but to one person, and that person's the coming Messiah. That's the word Christ, that's Jesus. 
Verse 17 says, so let me say this, 430 years later when God gave the law to them, it wasn't so that they could go and get right with him. The law was there to keep them from going back. And let me say this way, the law was there to keep you from going back to the slavery you were in or trying to blend in with the world he's trying to use you to change. And so it says this, 430 years later, it, the law isn't going to change the covenant God got in with you. It isn't like God says, this is the new thing. God says, I love you, I want you, I want you to respond to that. And here's some standards, some fences I'm setting up so you don't go back to your world that you were in. Because what I want to give you is an inheritance. And you know who gives you an inheritance? A father does. You see, the other relationship God most often uses is that of a father. I understand why the enemy has worked so hard on screwing up, messing up, tweaking, and, and making wonky those two relationships, that of a father and that of a husband. So that when God tries to describe it in Scripture, you already have this feeling of pain and resentment and bitterness. Oh, man, if you knew my dad or I was in a relationship and I thought he was going to be my husband or he was my husband, but you should have seen him. And then I say, well, God wants to be your husband. You're like, ah, no thanks. I've seen what those are. Don't want any of that. God's like, not this way. This God adopts because he just wants you. So what purpose does the law serve? Verse 19. Well, I mean, if God added the law, what was it for? Again, the purpose was so that we wouldn't go back to where we went, where we came from, or that we wouldn't try to blend in with the world he's going to use us to change. But rather, he's like, look, you know what I want to do? I want to show that the entire world needs this Redeemer. Like this offer is for any human being. And what happens is when you try to hold up the law and say, well, this is what's going to make me right, the problem is how many laws do you have to break before you become a criminal? So in verse 21, he asks then, well, let me ask then, is the law against the promises of God? The point, either the law is fighting that covenant or that law is in conjunction with it. And can I say the law is in conjunction with it? There's the point. You see, the idea of it is, is that God says, I love you, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to use you to bless. Hear me, hear me, because we're almost done now. I'm going to use you to touch and, and I mean, the world is going to be a better place because you're in it. Because of what I do through you. And you're like, well, how could the world be a better place? And God's like, let me tell you the one universal need. You're like, well, I don't understand. How is, am I going to be able to, be able to reach somebody in Lithuania the same way that someone in China or somebody that is in Yemen? How am I going to, and God's like, look it, let me make it simple. What the law says is every human being has the same problem. And that is that we even in our own conscience have broken it. We stand guilty even in our own conscience before God. That's why there's so many religions. They're trying to fix that. God says, but I love you and I want you and all I want you to do is say yes. Please. And there's the point. So what the law does is it says, you know, it really doesn't matter anymore whether you are a woman or a man, whether you and people are like, well, what about this person and they're really crazy or this person and they're, they're probably possessed or this person, they don't even know who they are or whatever. It's like, God's like, stop trying to figure all that out. The problem's the same for every human being and that's the point. 
And here's the cool part. Nobody has the inside track. Hey, there's some that were raised in Christian homes, and you would think, well, maybe they are going to be a better off person. I wasn't. I wasn't one of those people. The best thing that happened to me was that that person that I was died. But can I say that God says, it doesn't matter where you start. We all stand with the same offer. Because every one of us needs it. And that's why you're like, well, how many options do I need? It's like you only need one because the problem is the same. In Italy, in France, in Brazil, in Germany, in Greece, even in America or England, you know, it doesn't really matter. In Finland, it doesn't matter. The problem is still the same. We need the same Savior because God wants us. And He's paid the price. Because this was done through a mediator because clearly the reason you introduce a mediator is there's a problem that needs to be solved. What the law did is it showed what the problem was. The problem is somebody has to pay for this. So, what the law does, and this is how it ends here, is he says the law was our tutor. Pedagogos. Let me explain, and we'll wrap this up. Hugo. Let's say that Hugo is a fine young boy, raised under the household of Louis, because I'm just trying to keep it a little bit French here. Now, Louis has some responsibilities. In those first early years, the father is, to be honest, he's the breadwinner of the house in the Middle East, and so he's busy doing his job. His job, by the way, something radical happens the moment a boy is born in the house. Dad gets really serious about the kind of business he's running. Because he knows at this point somebody's going to follow in his footsteps and someone's going to be watching him. Now, mom, by the way, she starts telling stories. That's what her job is, by the way. She puts, if you will, the wonder and the passion in it. It's a beautiful thing. She sits down and she tells them the stories of Elijah and she tells the stories of Moses and the stories of Abraham, for instance. This whole thing as we did. You know, and, and it's like the, with the idea that you don't have a lot of details. You just kind of get this idea it was really a cool thing and it was wonders. And it's like, wow. And it introduces somewhere of when you get to that age where you start going to what we would call a contemporary school. What would happen is, is that at that point now a person would be introduced and that person would be called a pedagogos. A pedagogos, by the way, in those days, by the way, if you were actually poorer, you had a personal slave that actually taught your children. If you were richer, you sent them to a school. Now, today it may seem a little bit reversed, but get this. So somebody would dare, and what they would do is they would start training you, but now what they would be training Hugo in would actually be some of the reading and writing, but also they would be starting to prepare him for that day. In other words, they're doing the preliminary thing. So let's just say that Louis is a, 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 a woodworker. But in those days, wood wasn't easy to come by, so it wasn't like he was doing things with big timber. He was doing very ornamental things. These are really important things. These are expensive items. These are art now. They're not just functional. So there's a lot of things that you could learn before you get to sit under your father. So what would happen is, is that somebody would be teaching you what woods are like. How do you use wood? How to plane wood? How to sand wood? Those kind of things that would be kind of the basics. What it looks like to use a drill. All of those things, chances are, are going to be done by a pedagogos. But there will be a come a point where, in essence, you are now going to be able to be taken under the trainership now of your father. You are at that point now where you are ready, you have the basic tools, you are set up so you have the standard so that now it's like you've presented and said, here you go, Dad. 
And at that point, dad already knows that he already knows those basic things. He doesn't have to teach him how to use a tool. And now he's like, now let me show you how to take that, that what you know and put it into our family business. Does that make sense? That's a pedagogos. He says, that's what the law did. What the law did is he said, let me lay out the basic standards of things. And here's the basic standards. God wants you. You aren't, by the way, going to be able to earn this on your own. You're going to have to rely on God's grace, his kindness to do this because he loves you. And so here's the deal. What you need is a Savior. God is your Savior. What you need is your price paid. Jesus paid it on the cross. And now, here you go. All you need to do is say yes. And now I'm going to hand you to Jesus and let him be your Savior. And then guess what you get to do? Follow him. The idea of a pedagogist was not just, okay, well now you might as well just die because we're done with class. It's, now I'm handing you over so you can have a whole life following in your father's footsteps. And there's the idea. And so what Paul is telling these people is this law you're trying to introduce, you're going backwards. And sort of like, here you are, your father's been working calculus with you, but you're trying to go back to adding. How exactly does that work? Because what you're adding in should have been the thing, not that you leave it behind, you always take that information, but you take that information and you lay it on grace and you say, all right, God, you're it. And that's what he says. He says, you know, we're heirs. Why God says, I want to give you this beautiful inheritance, which is me, God speaking, is because he loves you. And as an adopting father, he just looks and says, yeah, you. And you're like, well, what is it in me that you want? He's like, love, I want your love. That's what I want. So hear me as we go to prayer. Paul's crying off. And we could have developed this in a lot more technical, but I really believe God just wanted us to get to the heart of this matter tonight. And that is that everything we do is either going to be in response to a God who loves you and wants to be with you, or to earn something from God. Where you're making it happen. And it's like, it is, and like, here's the crazy thing. You could do the same thing just with the wrong reason. I don't read the Bible because if I read the Bible, maybe my day will be better. Maybe I could better out argue some lunatic that's out there waving his little pamphlet or whatever. But I know that there's a God who wants me to know him better. And he's calling out to that. He's calling into me that. And as a result of that, I'm opening up his word and saying, all right, well, Lord, then show me who you are. And he's never not done it. My prayer is not, if I pray enough, I'll get more stuff. My prayer is, Lord, I know you want to speak with me, and I want to speak with you, and I want to have time of talking. I want to have time where we can really hear each other's hearts. And I already know you know mine. I need to dial in with yours. So let's talk. Church is not, if I just do it and I, you know, and then clearly then I'll get the job and the girl or the whatever and the thing and the money. It's like, look at God's like, you know what? I want you to have the beauty and feel the privilege of being used to bless someone else. Remember that whole promise that I'm going to use you to bless people? Who better to try that on first than here? Because they have to forgive you. They're, they're Christians. You know? And the idea is, like, I want you to be able to kind of go and feel safe. I want you to have a place where you could feel safe. To just say, God, if you really are putting on my heart to pray for that person or just be with that person and sit and talk with them and cry with them or read scripture with that person, well, then, Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it a try. There's got to be that gopher. And you're like, well, what if I fail? The failing is saying no. That's the failing. It's like, well, I don't know what's going to happen if I say yes. Yeah, you do. You're going to please God because that's all He wants is a yes from you. So as we go to prayer... 
If you've made a claim to Jesus Christ, then, and that's, there's only two people, he says, like, at the end of it all, it's not going to be about whether you're a guy or a girl, or whether you're a Greek or a, Gen, uh, a Gentile or, or Jew, whether you're really trained and educated or not. All of those things that give us identity before coming to Christ divide us afterwards. Now, that doesn't mean you become stupid. It doesn't mean you cease to have the skin color you do. <laughs> the point is, Jesus becomes so much your life, it just doesn't matter as much anymore. There's the point of it. So all of a sudden I look and I'm like, you know what? It isn't like, all right, all the German Christians over here, and let's get all of the African Christians in the back so they can make some noise, and let's get the Greek Christians over there because they're going to get kind of noisy too. That's just not it. It's like in the end of it all, it's not going to be about who's a guy and who's a girl and who's a Greek. It's like if, when it becomes about Jesus, we just kind of love each other. And that's his point here. You start adding the law, you start dividing people. You start saying, if you do these things, God's going to really get, get you good in a good way. But God already loves you perfectly. He just wants to keep you from falling into the stupid things you would hate to be in anyways. So let me read this and then we're going to pray. And I want to remind you, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ... And again, here it is. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. All of your filth, all of your wrong, all of your shame, all of your guilt paid for. Jesus volunteered. He said, you know what? I want her so much. I want him so much. I'd rather die than be without him. So I'll take all of that and I'll take it on, put it upon me. Because he has no sin to pay for himself. So he could make that volunteer. Dying on the cross and then raising again on the third day and saying, now, will you let me love you? Will you let me pay your bill? Will you follow me now? So listen, brothers, I speak in a manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed, nobody can annul it and nobody can add to it. Originally it was Abraham, to his seed, not to seeds, not to a lot, but to one specific person he was speaking of in regards to this promise that he made, and the promise was through going to be through Jesus Christ, who, by the way, again, is direct lineage from Abraham. And so this I say, that this law that was 430 years later, it cannot annul it, and it cannot uh, it can add anything to it. But it says, but rather, that the covenant was confirmed before by God in Christ Jesus. So therefore, it can't make the promise of no effect. The inheritance is not of the law. It can't be of the law. Because if it was of the law, then it wouldn't be of the promise anymore. It would have disqualified the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So then what purpose does the law serve? Well, if that's the case, well, why do we even need it? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed to angels by the hand of a mediator. Why a mediator? Two parties are at ends. Now a mediator doesn't mediate for one only. God's one, though. Is the law against the promises of God? Of course not. If there had been a law that would have given life, well, then truly righteousness would have been through the law. But the scripture has put everybody under the same playing field can find everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ would be given to anyone who would believe. It's like the law said, anyone, everyone has the need, and anyone who wants can be saved. But before faith came, we were kept under a guard, the law. Kept for faith until afterward would be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified not by what we've done, but by trusting in what he's done. That's what faith is. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
As many of you who were baptized into Christ have been put on Christ. And you know what? If it's going to be about that, you're going to be about Jesus now. It's not going to be about whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're a slave or free, whether you're male or female. It's going to be about the fact that Jesus has really become our lives and because of that we can love each other. So, if you are Christ, well then you actually are following in the footsteps of Abraham. You're part of his seed now. Heirs according to that promise. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to sit here with this beautiful book and to hear your heart. Thank you that it's never been plan B. Your heart has always been to make us yours, to have us, to have our love. And we confess to you, Lord, there are times where that's not the first thing on our mind. And Lord, maybe we've been so polluted by by politics. But what other people have laid out, Lord, that isn't according to Scripture, but according to their own worldly understanding or because of, of some selfish desire or some tradition. But it isn't because of you. Oh God, tonight you are calling out to have a relationship with us, a covenant, a covenant that can only happen through relationship. And you proved it by taking the step first. You died on the cross before we ever had any knowledge of you, before we ever could make that choice. It isn't like you said, if you do these five things, I'll die on the cross for you. You already had a plan to do that before anything was made. And I recognize as awkward and as weird as that is, that puts every one of us in a crisis if we've not accepted that gift because we recognize tonight that we have a choice to make. The good news is you promised your Holy Spirit would confirm this in our hearts. And look, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to make you do anything that's going to in any way single you out. I wouldn't know. But let me ask you, have you accepted the gift of Christ's love, His payment on the cross, where He made the motion? Here's the strange part. For the God we'd want, if we were to perform, that would be so welcoming, so receiving, so formidable to our performance. How about if we were that person now, as the judge of God's work for us? Will we be the favorable judge? Will we be the one that says, yes, Jesus, that's enough. That's what I want. That's more than acceptable. Your death on the cross to pay for me. If you're going to pay my bill, why would I want to pay it? If you rose from the dead to take me and detach me from the horrible world I came from, all its guilt and shame, and in its place give me a life of joy and peace and hope, and love well if that's what you really want to do then I need to say yes to that so here in this room and within the sound of this voice I just want to pray a prayer and I want you to listen I'm going to have you repeat but if you do then you may not hear it You may not be able to really go, okay, can I say yes to this? But I'm going to pray a prayer and ask you to listen. And if you agree, 
At the end I ask you to give a confident, resounding Amen. That's it. But what you're saying in that is, I do agree, let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. That's what you're saying. I want you to know that the moment you say yes to the gift of Jesus, all of the angels of God in heaven rejoice. You start a a celebration in heaven because they know how desperately God has wanted you. And here's the prayer. God, you've said in your scripture tonight that every human being is alike under sin. That we all need a Redeemer. But you've made clear in your scripture that you are that Redeemer. That you, because you want me, sent Jesus to die on the cross for me so that all of my guilt could be properly punished without me. And just like your scripture promised three days later, he rose from the grave. And in the same way, and my accepting his payment for me, I am offered a brand new life. I may not understand everything, but I understand that this is where it all starts. Your word has brought me to this choice to receive your gift at the cross for me. And I'm going to say, I say yes. I'm going to say yes right now. Jesus, if you really are every bit of that, then please come and fill my life like you want to. Wash me clean. Detach me from my own failures and regrets and fears and overwhelmedness. Release me from that bondage and make me yours that I would follow you. Not like some politically religious nut but rather as a person who responds with the love that you've offered me. If what you really want is my love, God, I don't don't even know if I have it to give, but I know that you could put it in me to give you. So I say yes, confessing Jesus as my payment, my Savior, and my Lord to lead me now. I say yes. Have me. Make me yours. Father, you want to adopt me? Be my guest. Care for me. Cover me. Protect me. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with this prayer, here's your choice to make. I ask you to just say, Amen. Lord, I thank you for those who've said yes to you tonight. May we, Lord, tonight sense the joy you are experiencing over this. And may we be in wonder of a God who loves us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.